Well, good morning. Got a little bit of a hoarse voice. I've been preaching pretty hard today, and you're going to get the same. So uh, I'm looking forward to this text. Uh, but as we come into this, this is the awake crowd at 1130, right? So you guys have lots of extra sleep. Our 830 crowd had three hours less than you. That means you have absolutely zero excuse for not being engaged today. So I'm excited to bring this message to you this morning. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, this is a great place to begin our new year. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 23. Picking up a story that the historian Luke recorded for us. Talking about the early church. And it is a great place to start. Verse 23, this is what he writes. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So I want to put down a piece of tape this morning. You're not going to be able to see it, but you'll know it's here. Because I've heard it said that faith in many ways, or the activity of our faith it's kind of like being on one of two sides. On one side, we can exercise our faith in such a way where everything is known. We meticulously plan. We make sure that we know the outcome before we start the process. We make sure that we're in control of the results, in control of what's going to happen. There is no risk. On the other side is a faith that is lived where there is complete and under, utter dependence upon God because the things that you're believing, the things that you're trusting, the things that you're hoping are far beyond reality from a human perspective and they are dependent upon a God who is sovereign to carry them out. There's two sides that people exercise in their faith. I need to ask you this morning as we begin, which side are you on? If you live on the first my hunch is that prayer is not a very significant part of your life because there's nothing really that you're in desperate need, independence upon God for. 
Everything's within your grasp. Everything's in control. On the other side, if you live on this side of this side of faith, then prayer is not just a last resort. It is always your first priority because you're constantly existing in a place where you are in utter dependence upon God to see something happen, to see movement This morning, we begin a three-week series on prayer and a spiritual discipline called fasting. And we want to understand today that we want to be people who pray first, who pray first. Sermons on prayer, I've heard it said, are like books on marriage. They may help point the way to the reality of a deep and precious relationship, but the reality is discovered and experienced in the act of marriage, not in talking about or reading about marriage. So I can speak to you this morning about prayer, but unless that word then is taken and lived and practiced, it will still always be a struggle. You will not experience the joy of it. So as we talk about Acts 4 this morning, let's invite God to illuminate our hearts to the truth of this message, to the truth of his word. I just want to give you a few moments here just before we begin to pray and ask that God's spirit would speak his truth to you this morning. Then I'll close us and we'll dive in together. Would you pray? Father, as we come before you this morning, we come expectantly. We come knowing that your word is true and that your word gives us insight into our lives and into our faith. We come knowing that you have a word for us so that as we follow through, through the power of your spirit, our lives might be transformed and we might make a difference for the gospel. Father, I pray that today as we hear from you, as we explore this text together, that our hearts would be opened. Speak to us now in your name. Amen. The church began in Jerusalem. And that's an interesting fact because that is the very place and the very site where Jesus himself was crucified. You can imagine the tension this created for the early Christians. Being in the environment where Jesus was tried And ultimately nailed to a cross. Well, after Jesus rose from the dead and then returned to heaven, the disciples stayed nearby. And they stayed nearby waiting. Why did they follow his instruction? Why did they stay near the city when there was potentially tension, potentially physical oppression that might come their way for being associated with him even after he had died? Why did they stay there? Well, I'm convinced that it's because if you actually knew that this man had died and then you knew, this is no myth, this is historical reality, that this man rose from the dead And then you saw this man with your own eyes multiple times over a period of time. And then you watch this man literally ascend into the heavens. Then I'm pretty sure that when he says, wait, you're going to wait. And you're going to believe what he says. So he said, wait until the spirit comes upon you. They might have just been trying to piece together everything that had just happened But they certainly 
believed in his words at this point. And even if they had no idea what was about to happen, they were waiting for something to happen. Well, eventually, as they waited, something did happen. And leading up to those days, what did they fill their time with in community together in this what they called the upper room? Prayer. And they prayerfully waited for something that they weren't sure how to even expect or anticipate. And then eventually this day came. It's a day we call Pentecost. It's the day that many would suggest is the first day of the new church, the new covenant that had been established when the Holy Spirit was poured out on everyone who had faith in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went out into the crowd during this Jewish festival that was happening, and they began speaking the good news of Jesus. It doesn't sound all that unusual in some ways, except for the fact that they were speaking in languages, or what the Bible calls tongues, that were known languages of people who were visiting Jerusalem from around the Greco-Roman Empire. And so as the Jews had gathered for a party from all over the empire, now they're hearing this good news of Jesus communicated to them in their local language. So the Jews that knew these men and knew these individuals looked upon them and said, these guys are smashed, like they're totally drunk. There is no way, they're just talking nonsense. So, I mean, it's kind of like the American tradition, we kind of just experienced it, hopefully not all of you. I hope you're not like, you know, getting over being drunk last night. But the idea is, like New Year's, we have the parties, we have the celebration, and there's alcohol, often involved. Back then, no different. Jewish festival, celebration, they had wine, and oftentimes they drink the wine, they get drunk on the wine, and the next day they're hearing these guys speak in these languages, and everybody says, those guys are drunk after the ball drop last night. I mean, they're still trying to wear that off, or they just never stop the party. It's just kind of continuing into the morning. And so Peter then speaks up. Of course, he's the first. He's always the first. And he says, no, 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 no. This is not... The case, this is not the case where there is drunkenness happening. This is the promise of God being fulfilled where his Holy Spirit has been poured out upon his people, and this is why. And he goes on to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and on that day, thousands came to faith. And what's fascinating is they came to faith in the same place, many of them being the same voices who were shouting, crucify him, just weeks before. Well, in Acts 3, we find that John and Peter are walking to the temple. Well, what happens just prior to Acts when we see Jesus walking to the temple to talk about the truth of God's kingdom? And they are walking to the temple at three in the afternoon, which was the hour of prayer. And as they walked to the temple, just like Jesus, as they walked, they went through a crowd, and amongst that crowd were many lame and many who were sick. And they found a man in Acts 3, and it's an interesting thing because Jesus had walked that same path into that same temple many times before, and Jesus did not heal this man. It's fascinating, isn't it, that Jesus could have healed everybody that was there, but there were many, hundreds perhaps, that remained unhealed. So this lame man from birth is amongst them. John and Peter walk by him, and he asks for money. That he probably assumes, well, if Jesus couldn't do it, these guys couldn't do anything for me, so just, do you have any money? 
They said, no, we don't have money for you, but what we do have is something better. And Peter speaks up and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man in that moment is healed. He jumps to his feet and he begins praising God. Everybody says, what happened? And then Peter again now starts to say for the second time, let me tell you how this happened and why it happened. This is a demonstration of God's Holy Spirit for the purpose of us communicating to you who Jesus was. And he shares the message of Christ. Well, now it's in the presence of a religious group by the name of the Sadducees, the religious elite who had been part of the trial of Jesus Christ, when they hear Peter saying such things, they grab Peter and John and they put them into prison. Once they've been in prison for a little while, they're released, they're brought before the Sadducees. The Sadducees basically say, you are not to speak of this man again. Do not continue to say the things that you're saying. Do not communicate the gospel here or whatever you're calling this gospel because it was not good news to them. And so they threatened them, and they sent them on their way. If you're Peter and John, what do you do? Can I just quickly allude to the fact that I think in our 21st century American evangelical Christianity, we would often leave those environments and say, those people don't want to hear about God. That's fine. I'll leave them alone. I do not want to pressure them. And so we go our own way. What do they do? Well, prayer, we first learn, must be our first response, not our last resort. And we can learn three things through this prayer this morning that will help us in our prayer lives and expose some areas where we can grow in our prayer lives. The first one is that our prayers demonstrate our dependence. Our prayers demonstrate our dependence. Look at verse 23. When they heard, or when they were released, so now you're caught up in the story, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They went to their friends. It shows us right away that we need people who can, we, we can run to for acceptance and support. Not just anyone. We need other men, other women of faith that we can go to in times of need and desperation. We need, in essence, a spiritual community. And, and this is something that's fascinating to me because so often when we think about American evangelical Christianity in our very individualized society, we handle all of our problems and all of our issues by ourselves. And so when those issues come up, our first response is not then to go to those within our church family and community who can help us. It is to handle it ourselves because we handle everything ourselves because we live on the side of faith where we make sure everything fits our compartments. It's plotted out. It's planned. I know what's going to happen next. I know when my paycheck comes. I know when we're going grocery shopping. I know the next thing we have to do. There's nothing within my life that's beyond my control. Or so we think. But these men go to their friends, and what that shows us is that community is essential for spiritual faithfulness. I'm not sure if we really believe this, but community, let me share with you this morning, friends, is essential. Community is essential to support our spiritual faithfulness. Without community, your fidelity to the gospel is vulnerable. 
Without spiritual community, your personal fidelity to the gospel, your commitment to the gospel is extremely vulnerable. They understood this. And so they went to their friends and they prayed with their friends. It's interesting to me, what role does the community play in prayer? Well, let me ask this question. And again, you guys are the 1130 crowd, so you can speak out and respond. Are most of the prayers we find in the scripture communal or individual? What's your guess? It is absolutely communal. And while we know that in our minds, are most of the prayers that you pray in your life communal or individual? This should give us reason to pause. Why are communal prayers important? Because we're human beings <laughs> with moods and emotions and ups and downs and peaks and valleys and good days and bad days. And sometimes we need men and women to help us in our faith. And when they heard, verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God. Prayer should always be our first response and not our last resort. This was the sequence. Peter and John, here's what's going on, guys. Their response, well, before we talk about it or give you any opinion, we need to pray. But why? Because prayer demonstrates our dependence. It demonstrates our dependence. The prayer we have here is probably a composite of what they all prayed together. It's the idea that they prayed with one voice. They were gathered in agreement together. Did you know that the word, the Greek expression that's used of it, as well as the Hebrew expression of the word amen, it's simply an affirmation. When we say amen, we're saying we're in agreement with what's been said. We're in agreement with what's been prayed. And so it's basically a resounding yes, amen. That's what it means. So they had this prayer in agreement, and they answered uh, the dangers, the threats, and the intimidation with what? With prayer. Prayer was an everyday natural part of their expression of faith. It was foundational to their relationship with God. The culture opposed their mission, clearly. The culture threatened imprisonment. The culture threatened isolation. And what did they do in response to those threats? Well, these are the rules of the culture, so now we know how to play by them. God understands when I compromise my faith. God understands when, what, what, that, that if I were to press forward, that might upset someone. God knows that I have a family provide for. I have job relationships that I need to upkeep. I need to gain the approval of others within my organization. So that means that I can, I just need to section some things off. And within this area, he understands this is just how the world works. I, he, he knows that I don't need to talk about Jesus there. God understands that if I play to the culture, it's okay if I just keep my Jesus private, at home, before a meal, in my bedroom, with my family on Sunday, but not there. He doesn't need to go there because if I tried to go that way, then they'll think that I'm just trying to push my agenda. They'll think that I'm not very 
relevant in our society. They'll think maybe I'm too committed to this. They might call me a bigot. Well, what did they do? It's amazing to see, and this is one of the things that's been getting after me this week. It's amazing to see that the early followers of Jesus had jobs, they had lives, they had families, but they never imagined a faith that quietly hid in the corner. They knew that the news of Jesus must be shared. Maybe we struggle with prayer because we never risk offense and therefore we lack dependency. If we are on this side of the line, we say it's all calculated. God understands. This is just how faith gets lived out in American evangelical Christianity. He gets it. Well, give me grace. We love God's grace. So we ask him for it and we do nothing at times. Let me share with us this morning, if we are independent people, we will not be people of prayer. Your measure of spiritual dependency is directly related to your intensity of prayer. Let me say that again. Your measure of spiritual dependency upon God is directly related to your intensity of prayer. Ole Hallisby, a well-known Norwegian theologian, put it well. He said, only the helpless can truly pray. Only the helpless can truly pray. When you are living on this side of faith and when you're putting yourself out there and you're like, God, I don't know how you're going to restore this relationship. I don't know how this is going to go down. I know that you haven't asked me just to put Jesus on the shelf in the closet at home. I'm not sure how to live out my faith, but as you lead me, I'm going to do it, even though there's risk involved. And as I'm living here, it promotes dependency upon God and it pushes us to prayer. If we're not prayerful people, is it because we've been sitting on this side of the line and we already know the outcome because we're independent? We don't need God's resources. I have everything I need. As long as we feel self-sufficient, self-satisfied, self-fulfilled, self-motivated, as long as we are self-centered, we will never pray well. But this is not our faith. Let me remind us who we are. Not who we struggle to be, but who we are through the power of the Spirit. We are God-centered, Christ-following, Spirit-filled people who acknowledge that apart from our sovereign Lord, we are utterly helpless. So that means we are dependent upon Him every moment of every day. When we look at Luke's historical telling of the story of the church in Acts, he shows us people who prayed. And it's interesting to me what they prayed about this early church in the book of Acts. They prayed one thing, is they prayed for God's guidance in selecting leadership. Acts 6, Acts 13, Acts 14. Why would they do that? Don't we have elders and an HR department at Woodside who handles all that stuff? Why do we need to Pray for our leaders. We're having a candidate come at the end of this month. His name is CT. His wife's name is Megan. We've been long looking for a student director and an associate pastor. And can I just invite you as brothers and sisters, we need to pray about this. 
Maybe you never thought it was a big deal. You know, if one pastor goes, another guy comes in, another woman here, another director there, you know, big deal. It's fine. It's all the same. Let me remind all of us this morning, the reason why we need to pray is because when leaders are chosen who do not depend on God, the people of God suffer, and so does our mission and our message. So we need to pray. They prayed in Acts, this church, for physical healing, Acts 28. They even prayed for God to raise a woman to life who had died, Acts 9. That's crazy, you might think. We're logical people. We live in the day of modern medicine. If there's something wrong, then God has allowed us to come to conclusions within our medical fields and society where the doctors will fix it. And if the doctors can't fix it, then it wasn't meant to be fixed. And people who pray for things like healings and, oh my goodness, praying for a woman who died to come back to life, that is just superstitious Pentecostals. They are not grounded in the reality of of their faith like we are. We know better than to pray for things like that. Why would we pray for someone to race to life? How ludicrous does that sound? We keep our faith grounded in reality. We keep it all organized so we can measure it and so we know what's going to happen. We don't want to leave room for that, friends. We must never measure what is normal and acceptable based on the culture of a particular church community. We must measure what is normal and acceptable first and always on the church we discover in the word of God. So what does that mean? Did they pray in the book of Acts for healings? Yes. Was I raised in a Baptist church? You might not know, but yes. Did we ever pray for such things? No. Because we thought that was crazy. If God wants to heal him, yeah, you could pray for that privately. But God doesn't do that kind of stuff. We know better. Our faith is grounded in the word. And that's the irony of the whole thing, isn't it? That the book of Acts shows us a church who is committed to praying for such things. Did they always happen? No. Was everyone healed? No. Did it occasionally happen? Yes. That's why it's called a miracle. And so we're invited to pray as this church prayed. They prayed what we see here. Let me share another one that's just different than our society and culture. They prayed for boldness in speaking God's word. We like to pray for opportunities. God, please make all the conditions just right so that it becomes easy to talk about Jesus without the possibility of anyone being offended, anyone feeling smothered, and anyone feeling like I'm pressuring them in the slightest way possible. That is because we live in a relativistic, pluralistic, postmodern society where there are no absolutes, and if we were to mention that our faith actually pushes someone towards an absolute truth that Jesus is the Son of God and only through him you can experience salvation, then we live in fear, relational fear, relational crucifixions that we might be called a bigot. And so we play it safe. We don't want to be put in the bag of an intolerant religious system. We're not one of those. Don't call us one of those systems. We don't want anyone to feel like we're telling them their views are wrong. (laughs) 
And since our culture has boxed us in as intolerant bigots, we make sure we don't make things worse. My point, how often are we praying for boldness? If we ask at all, we sometimes ask for open doors and easy, non-threatening discussions that hopefully do not come across as too challenging. This is far away from the world of the church in the New Testament. Can I just remind us this morning as brothers and sisters, as one who is on this journey with you, we have a message, right? We, uh, not, you're not convinced. We believe this message, let me try again, we believe our message brings eternal life, right? We believe it has everything to do with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that we are to share it, as Peter does, with gentleness and respect, But let me remind all of us this morning, friends, we are to share our message of love, and that's exactly what the gospel is, that God so loved the entire world. We are to share our message of love with gentleness, respect, and boldness. Gentleness, respect, and boldness. We have the first two down. We need some work on the third. In our day, in our city, in our Jerusalem. Our prayer must be a first response, not a last resort. So why is God worthy? Let's ask this question of our dependence. Look at what else we find. Look at the the verse here. It says, Sovereign Lord, this is how the prayer begins, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We are dependent on God. Why? Because of who he is. Who is he? Well, they say, because our prayers, this is point two, our prayers reflect our beliefs. And what does this tell us about the beliefs of these early followers of Jesus? Their belief was in the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Well, what does that mean? Well, sovereign Lord, interestingly enough, was a title in the first century that was attributed to governors, kings, and certainly to the Caesar. So they would call their rulers Sovereign lords. And the church understood that that title had been hijacked and placed on broken humanity. And so they brought it back and said, no, no, no. This title, this phrase, there is only one worthy who is called sovereign lord. And that's who we are petitioning to. The sovereign lord, the one who is in control. He's the only one who can help. So they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who can help us with our problems, with our threats? We have, we've, we've come to the conclusion, we know this in our hearts, it is not a paycheck. We know it in our hearts, it is not our spouse. We know it in our hearts, it is not other people. First and foremost, they can support and help and encourage, but the resources that we need are ultimately only found in the sovereign Lord. So they prayed to him. They appealed to him, saying, Sovereign Lord, you're the maker of everything. 
So if there's anything that we need, you're the one to talk to first. And that's how they prayed. Verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, is the rest of their prayer, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city, they were still, remember, in Jerusalem, at ground zero, just a few quick minutes from where Jesus was tried and crucified and buried. In this city, They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's plan allowed the rulers of the world to come together and crucify his anointed And in their prayer, they quote from Psalm chapter 2, where the psalm is written of King David, who was being oppressed. And yet, while David saw fulfillment of this immediately within his life, this finds messianic, complete fulfillment in Jesus. The nations opposed to him, written in Psalms chapter 2, brought to mind in Luke's writings here. Who, Who are the nations? That's the Gentiles, the Romans, who sentenced Jesus to death. The people opposed to him. This wasn't back when David was was living then. He had his own fulfillment of it at the time, but now we have the fulfillment and we see that it's applied to the people of Israel and the high priest himself who tried and found Jesus guilty. The kings who were opposed to him, that's King Herod. The rulers who were opposed to him, that's Pontius Pilate. And so all of this opposition came to Jesus, all of this oppression came to Jesus, and it was somehow within the plan of the sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So what does Jesus say to his followers? The same will be true for you. We don't like that. (laughs) Can we just admit we don't like that one? in our culture, in our society, in our idea. See, let me share with you this morning that not all oppression is physical. Not all oppression is physical. It can show up as we are tempted to compromise the gospel. That's also spiritual oppression. When we know, man, I'm going into this environment, maybe it's at work, maybe wherever it is, and I'm going here, and I know how these guys are, how these women speak, and I know the ethics involved and how they make business deals, and I know how they interact with one another. And, and, and so I know when I'm going in there, I just need to play by their rules so I can be at peace. They'll never know. They don't, they don't know I even... I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but God understands. It's compromising our message for which we live. It can show up as we are tempted to give into materialistic seduction. Why do I need to be dependent on God when, when I can buy everything I need? I can buy my future. I can buy my safety. I found it absolutely fascinating. I was watching the ball drop, which is probably... Probably one of the reasons why my voice is hoarse because I stayed up too late. So I was watching the ball drop last night and I was watching, we were flipping in between NBC and ABC. ABC's coverage was a disaster. 
It was hilarious. If any of you watched it, the music was bad to begin with, but, but there was a whole moment with Mariah Carey. I'm not going to get into details, but it was, it was kind of funny, honestly. So this whole deal happens. So we're flipping in between that and, and kind of part of me felt bad for her, but then the other part of me was like, this is way more entertaining than watching her lip sing the songs. And so... So I'm watching that, we're all caught up in that and kind of chuckling to ourselves, but then we flipped over to NBC's coverage, and and as the show started, this is the first four minutes, as the show started, they scanned across the crowds, and they said there are one million people, another uh, another one of them said two million people, whatever the number is, but they said, here's all these people in New York City, and, and they didn't first talk about 2016, they didn't talk about 2017, they talked about how you, as a viewer from home could have complete, 100% confident security in the fact that they all will be safe. And that as you watch this show, nothing bad is going to happen. That was the first five minutes of NBC's ball drop. Can we come to such conclusions? Do we have control over such conclusions? (laughs) And yet we live in this society that says you can buy it, and if you believe it, and if you think it, you are safe. And when you're safe, you don't need God. You don't need prayer. You're not out on a risk. There's no ledge. You're safe, comfortable, gentle, cozy. But the church was anything but this. Can I remind us again this morning, following Christ is not safe. And maybe that is hard for you to hear. But following Christ is not safe, at least in this world. I'm a huge basketball fan. It reminds me of something LeBron James said to his teammate Kevin Love last year in a tweet. He wrote, for the world to see, stop trying to fit out and fit in. His point was, you're either part of the team or you're not part of the team, but figure it out. And this is kind of what the Bible sets up. There are two kingdoms that are discussed in the word of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And we cannot have a foot in both. There is no middle ground. If we are in the kingdom of God, then we are, through faith in Christ, we are called kingdom of priests, according to the words of the apostle Peter, the same man who was involved in all of this. And a kingdom of priests, what's that mean? That means that all of us were sent to serve the needs of the world who are desperately in need of Christ. That's why we're here. It's a purpose to our time here. Otherwise, we would just come to Christ and we'd be gone. He'd take us. But that's that's not our mission. That's not our purpose. He keeps us just like he kept his son for a reason to further God's kingdom. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of our holy servant, 
your holy servant, Jesus. They are praying for boldness, knowing they might experience persecution as a result of this prayer. Think about this, friends, and this is really what got me this week. And Katie can tell you how much I struggle with this one, and I think you might as well. Their priority, as we see in the text here, their priority in their prayer was not their own well-being. Isn't that interesting? Their prayer was not for the threats to stop. I'd want to pray that. Take away these threats. Remove these guys. Their prayer was not for the situation to change. Lord, bring in new leadership that's not opposed to our message. Their prayer was not that their enemies would die. The prayer was not about their comfort. It was about God's kingdom. And man, was I struck when I saw that in the text. And so often I pray, Sovereign Lord, I want your comfort. And maybe I don't say I want to be comfortable. Maybe that's not how you say it. But we say, God, would you just take away this thing that's hard in my life? God, would you take away this pain, this physical issue? Would you just take this away? Because I'm not comfortable here. I, I know you want me to be happy. I know that you love me, so wouldn't you take it away? They wanted instead the cause of Jesus to go forward, even if it meant their own persecution. And this brings us to our third point our prayers expose our priorities. What was their top priority? The gospel. The boldness to preach the gospel. What was not their priority? Their own well-being. May I respectfully suggest to you that our prayers not, might not be properly prioritized because they are not prioritized around what matters most to Jesus. And let me share with you just to encourage you, he absolutely cares about your well-being. That is why he came, for our eternal well-being. That's why he came. But that eternal well-being is not our right now well-being. So he came to give us this hope. And then for the rest of our days, he said, the gospel is meant to be number one in your life. Are you starting to see it, friends? Prayer demonstrates our dependence. Prayer reflects our beliefs. Prayer exposes our priorities. What does your prayer life communicate about your dependence, beliefs, and priorities. I've been praying as I prepared this message, three things for our church. May Woodside Bible Church of Romeo be filled with followers who pray out of their utter desperation, knowing that we are 100% dependent upon God. Maybe it's not because of persecution. Maybe we're not going to experience the same type of oppression that they experienced. But maybe it's because we know how prone we are to thinking independently. Because we know how prone we are to give into the idolatries that are so subtle. 
financial idolatries, uh, professional idolatries, lustful idolatries, recreational idolatries, the idol of our bodies or our families. We must pray out of desperation over here. God, I will become so easily tempted and swayed to think otherwise. Keep my faith utterly dependent on you. Because I, I become blind so easily. I pray may Woodside Bible Church of Romeo be filled with followers of Jesus who pray based on sound belief. We know who God is. And that means we know who we are and are not. We know who Jesus is. And we know that we are not him. We know who the spirit is. And we know what his voice sounds like. And may Woodside Bible Church of Romeo be filled with followers of Jesus who pray for gospel Movement, our first priority for boldness, that God will do only what he can do in 2017 through this community of followers. Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Verse 31, let's see how it ends. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The Father graciously gave them a sign. They, they were in a place that was shaken, physically shaken. We must be careful not to demand a sign from God, but we must be careful not to deny the possibility of one either. And so I need to ask you this morning, which side of the tape are you on? I know many of us, maybe many of you, are on this side, but this morning through confession and through release, you could say, God, I want to be on this side. I want to see, I want to see you move in such a way in my life that I know that is clearly your hand. I cannot map out what's going to happen because it is beyond the scope of my reality. Only your understanding will do. And I know that we, I think, I think our church family does an amazing job of sharing the gospel of love in gentleness and respect. But maybe now we need to also pray that we would share that message of hope and of love with gentleness, respect, and boldness this year. That's what God is calling us to. That's what he's calling you to. Pray first. I want to help you with this. We want to do this together as a church family. You'll notice in your bulletin as we close, I'll invite the band up. There's a 15-day prayer journal, very well put together. Join me. Let's commit 15 days, two weeks, and three Sundays. That's all we got. Just give me 15 days. Let's give the Lord 15 days of our time committing to prayer that demonstrates our beliefs that prioritizes our lives, that reveals our dependence. This will help us. You'll also see here that there's an insert, and uh, we're going to have a couple events to go along with this. On January 11th, we're going to have a prayer night to kick off Thrive, uh, where all the student ministries, middle school, high school, and everybody up from there will be invited into this space for a time of teaching, worship, and prayer. 
Uh, we're going to do that together. It's going to be a fantastic night. January 15th, two weeks from today, I'm praying that even as you leave today, we have a sign up in the lobby that you would choose to worship during one service on January 15th, and then for a second service that you would choose to go below us into another room, it'll be led by one of our leaders, and spend a second hour in prayer communally. Give it a go. Every uh, Sunday as well, hopefully I don't forget tonight. I'm uh, also going to do like a quick recap of the message at 7 p.m. is just a Facebook Live event, if any of you want to pop on for that. There's also a book in the lobby on fasting. If you would like to join us in learning more about fasting there's, during this period as well. And so as we close this service, I thought of no better way than to begin the year and close this message by then transitioning this time for an opportunity for you to pray. So we're going to have communion together to start our year. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus Christ, the, blood, or the juice representing his shed blood. These symbols show us our dependence upon God. And we want to pray and ask him that we would be dependent people this year in our faith as well. So we're gonna take communion together and then respond and worship. If you would just bow your heads with me, I'll open up that time and then you can pray as you receive those elements. Father God, thank you for your word and for your truth. Father, we wanna be a people that places your gospel in its proper place. Father, we've seen the atrocities done in your name where people force this message that is meant to be good news on people without love, without gentleness, without respect. And so, Father, in our day, in our culture, in this city, we know that we need to value people. We need to be gentle, caring, loving, relational. But as we are, may we be people filled with your Holy Spirit's boldness for the sake of your gospel. May we not compromise our faith just hoping and praying that things will get easier. But Father, that we would stand behind your message, behind this truth, with feet firmly planted, expecting you to shake this place. Seeing lives changed for your glory, for eternity, because you care about all of our eternal well-being. That's why you came. As we reflect on Jesus coming, Father, help us to thank you for his rescue of us. Help us to, to pray that we would live in light of it. In Jesus' name.
bread represents the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Together, let's eat. This juice represents his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. Together, let's drink. I invite you to stand. As you stand, I believe that God is calling us to respond this morning with worship. And just for the sake of those around you, can we just collectively affirm, if you believe this, I don't care if you clap or shout or say amen, I don't care what your response is, but can we collectively affirm that this year, 2017, we are in desperate need of the Lord. Do you believe that this morning? Can I also ask you, just as your pastor, as your brother, I hope that you want to see movement for Jesus this year. I hope that you want to see so much transformative movement that whether we see something shake or not, that's not the point. I want to see lives shake because of the gospel that somebody has now experienced for the first time. And if that's where you are, we need God's help, his boldness and his hope to see it through. We need to live in light of those things. And so even as we sing here together, this is our response. Worship is not just a fill.